You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is the New England Journal of Medicine published the single largest study ever done on the health impact of coffee. Five different scientists followed more than 400,000, 402,000 actually, coffee drinkers for 13 years, and they found that coffee consumption decreased the risk of dying. So simply put, a coffee a day keeps the doctor away. Screw the apples. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is a really interesting guy. His name is Mark David. I met Mark at uh, JJ Virgin's event, and I thought he'd just be a great guest because we haven't talked much about the psychology of eating. I, I focus so much on the physical side of food cravings with a Bulletproof Diet and how if you address the things that cause the cravings, the psychology becomes less of an issue. But what if you still have the psychology? That's why Mark is on the show today to talk about it. Plus, he has about the coolest last name ever since it's my first name. So, hey, Mark David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mr. Dave Asprey. Glad to be here. Now, you're the founder, director, and the main trainer for the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. You actually have a degree in that, a master's degree. You've trained at the Harvard Mind-Body Medical Institute. You've written two best-selling books, The Slowdown Diet and Nourishing Wisdom, A Mind-Body Approach to Nutrition and Well-Being. And you've worked for like Johnson & Johnson and like big corporate companies. So tell me, what is the Institute for the Psychology of Eating and why did you start it? What a great question. I ask myself that every day. It's like having five unruly teenagers. You know, I started out in my journey as an absolute unabashed nutrition fanatic, born out of my own birth experience of growing up asthmatic and allergic and just a sickly kid. And this was back in the 50s, early 60s, when, you know, I was raised on Fruit Loops and Kool-Aid and marshmallow fluff and Velveeta cheese. Talk about unbulletproof diet. Yeah. And, you know, at around the age of five, no kidding, I heard a rumor that fruits and vegetables were good for you. 
asked my mother to buy some, ate them, coincidence or not, my health started changing, made this magical connection that food impacted my body. And, you know, that led me on a journey into the nutrition field. Really back in the late 70s, there wasn't a lot of us doing this. And I kind of discovered at some point that no matter how smart and sharp my clients were, no matter what I would tell them about what to eat and what not to eat, they'd often come back and say, I couldn't do it. Uh, I noticed that so many clients, I would do what was the right thing, whether it was for digestion or fatigue or for mood or for weight, and didn't always work. So I started wondering what the heck about the mind of the eater and the psyche of the eater. How do we help people do what they say they want to do? And more to the point, is the mind impacting the body? Does the mind indeed impact nutritional metabolism when it comes to digestion, assimilation, calorie burning, all of that? So I started my own educational journey. There wasn't a lot to read about it in those days. And sort of life was telling me, if you want to read a book on this, you got to write it yourself. you got to learn it. So that started my journey. And many moons later, when the body of work developed, and you know what that's like, your own personal journey leads you to study. And at some point, ah, there's something to offer back to the world. So I have a long, crazy education in psychology and nutrition and the health profession. So the Institute for the Psychology of Eating was formed as a way for me to get what I consider an interesting body of work out there. So we train people to be eating psychology coaches. We teach the public. And I'm guessing we're going to dive into some of what the material is pretty soon. That's the short answer, my friend. Oh, that's a, that's a great answer because you had that same personal struggle that so many people who are in the, we'll call it the health information field. It, it, it's kind of a new career for me. I, I'm a hardcore tech guy from Silicon Valley, you know, mm-hmm. was there in the room when we built cloud computing. And it's just so, it, it's so weird to me to realize that the stuff I did out of self-interest, really, I, I was really sick. And I was 300 pounds and all of that. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the journey of recovering from that and working it with an anti-aging nonprofit led me down the same path. But you actually went and you got an official degree in it. So how did you find a degree in psychology of eating? Like, did you make it up yourself? Is it one of those like self-guided things? Well, yes and no. The way I found it was I started looking all around the country for a psychology program. And I wanted to do a master's or a PhD that had anything to do with eating psychology. There was none. Uh, There's a wonderful school, a state school in California called Sonoma State University that uh, still does. And at the time had a very, let's call it a liberal uh, graduate psychology program. And they agreed to give me a nice big scholarship and let me invent a master's degree in eating psychology. So that's what I did. I put an ad in the newspaper once I got there and said, graduate student creating eating psychology support group. All are welcome. And this was back in the day when there wasn't any Internet. So it was literally print in a newspaper. I was shocked that 25 people answered who responded was probably 10 of the biggest people I've ever seen. I'm going to use the <laughs> F word, fat. Um, who responded as well was about five clinical anorexics. Wow. Uh, Three bulimics. There was one male in the mix. There was one professional model actress who had the typical Hollywood good looks and maybe about six or seven middle-aged women who you and I might look at and say, they look good to me, who hated their bodies and thought they had a ton of weight to lose. So over the course of two years, they in part were my laboratory and uh, learned a lot on the job. And today, you don't see clients, but you train practitioners to see clients. What's a, a typical curriculum to train someone about the psychology of eating versus like, you know, eat this, don't eat that kind of stuff? Well, I don't see clients anymore. I cut my teeth on arguably thousands and thousands of client hours. So essentially, you know, I think in the big picture, Eating psychology or the field that I've originated, dynamic eating psychology, looks at our relationship with food as a doorway, as a doorway to wherever. So a lot of people have eating issues, binge eating, emotional eating, overeating, weight challenges, 
And instead of looking at these things as the enemy to attack, which is what most people tend to view, instead of looking at extra weight as you poor willpower weakling, you loser, what's your problem? What's your issue? We're going to look at, we're going to walk through the doorway called extra weight, called binge eating and see where it takes us. So if you were my client back then, I might've discovered, wow, Dave is disembodied. He's not present. He's not in his body. He's somewhere else. He's not paying attention. He needs to get in. Your extra weight might've been a beautiful gift from the universe, a divine symptom that's kind of raising its hand and saying, hey, something's up. So that led you to the path you're on now. So in essence, eating psychology, the way I look at it, view it, teach it, it's a positive experience. So said in another way, food is a great teacher. Our relationship with food is a great teacher. And like any great teacher, let's listen up. Let's see what teacher is telling us. Another way to say that, and this comes from the ancient Greeks, this comes from the mystic tradition of, you know, Jews, Kabbalah, mystic Christians. They said every symptom was a whispering from your guardian angel. Every unwanted habit, every disease is trying to tell you something. And if we listen to the message, it has a chance to unwind itself and leave. And if we don't listen to the message, the angel blasts its horn a little louder. Um, So as an example, if somebody comes in to see me as we train our practitioners and they have fatigue, the first move, the first thought is, great, you have this fascinating symptom called fatigue Yeah, we're going to look at the nutritional pieces. Yeah, we're going to look at what's going on metabolically, health-wise, but we're also going to look at how is this a gift? What's it saying? Honestly, I've never met a person who had fatigue who on some level didn't need it. You know, it's like forced vacation. So eating psychology is like diving into the depth of the symptom, listening to it, letting it sit at the table, welcoming it on its own terms, My own fatigue, I've gone through chronic fatigue. It stopped me. It paused me. It got me out of New York City. It put me in bed. It made me look at my life, my relationship, my then marriage, you name it. It made me say, huh, I think something has to change. So so that's kind of the first big answer to your question that eating psychology kind of gives the client a big hug and says, you know, whatever challenge you're facing has a correctness to it. It has a rightness to it. Let's take away the judgment. Let's find the gold in it. If I wanted to tell this line of reasoning or or this approach to say a computer software programmer, (laughs) how do I translate the, the softer concepts you're describing into something that you know, when you say you're not in your body or, you know, you're, you're, you're not here, what does that mean to a guy who's, you know, maybe uh, a little bit skeptical and extremely rational? Like, how, how do you cross that divide? You know, honestly, part of it is somebody has to even want to potentially maybe cross that divide. There has to be a compelling reason. So would I start to talk about these concepts to that person you just mentioned if I met him at a party and wanted to impress him or her? Absolutely not. But if that person said to me, oh, wow, you're in the nutrition and eating psychology field, you know, I've been trying to lose this 25 pounds. It just doesn't come off no matter what I do. Or, you know, I have these digestive issues and I went and I got a full battery of GI tests and the doctor tells me nothing is wrong. So usually I need an opening. There has to be a complaint, quite frankly, because honestly, if I'm making enough money and having enough of the goodies that a guy wants in life, I'm not going to pay attention necessarily. Sometimes life has to grab us uh, by the uh, life has to grab us and shake us a little to want to change. So I'm imagining you and your journey at some point, you are more open, vulnerable willing to kind of dive in and say, huh, what else? So there has to be a complaint, quite frankly. Otherwise, I wouldn't even engage in the conversation, really. Okay, so you pick your target pretty well. That's that's the secret. Bingo. It, it's funny, because I work with CEOs and really high-performance people, uh, it's, in fact, I can tell you my own experience, it was really tough when someone said, you know, Dave, you're, you're not in your body. I'm like, 
it looks like I'm here to me. Like, you know, I, we don't even speak the same language here. And, yeah. and then I, I realized after a while, like, oh, wait, there is like something. And, and I had a, a woman working with me and she said, no, like that feeling, that thing in your stomach, that, that actually is an emotion. And, and I was like, oh, I guess I should pay more attention because all I did was like that hurts or that doesn't hurt. That was kind of a binary setting. And it turned out there was, you know, more awareness I could cultivate. And that led me to understand a lot of things about how the world around us interacts with us. So it, I just find it really difficult personally, if I'm working with, you know, a type A high performance person to, to talk to them about, you know, body awareness and having value, um, as a, as a signal of data coming into the body. So your approach is find the people who are interested because they're real easy to get. And that's a great approach. (laughs) (laughs) Great hack. (laughs) <laughs> you also do something very backwards um, than the way I've I've approached a lot of this. As you say, personal power equals metabolic power. And, and you're basically saying when you reach your potential from a psychological perspective, your body will reach its full potential. Am, am I reading that right? Uh, what I'm saying is, yeah, you're pretty much reading it right. What I'm saying is that the more we become – the guy or the gal that we're kind of genetically and cosmically and personally meant to be, the more you and I reach our potential in terms of who we are, how we operate in the world, our intellect, our heart, our soul, whatever you want to call it, the better the probability that the body can start to move in the direction that it wants to be. You know, I'm, I'm heavily influenced by a number of different fields of psychology, including yoga psychology, you know, that comes down from, you know, the tradition of Ayurveda or the Hindus. And they had a beautiful line thousands of years ago from the Upanishads. They said that the mind is rarefied body and the body is solidified mind. Their fancy way of saying, yo, dude, we exist on a continuum for goodness sakes. You can't separate it out. So what I started noticing in my own personal journey was the more I cleaned up my life, the more I became more truthful, more honest, more authentic, the more I stopped lying, the more I stopped being a bullshitter, the more I started getting into living life in a more honorable way, the more I started trimming out relationships in my life that were pulling me down, I noticed I was getting healthier. And then the more I started meditating, I noticed I was getting healthier. And the more I started, you know, doing right livelihood, because there were points in my life I was making money, I wasn't so proud of, you know, the the, the companies I was working for or consulting with, but they paid me well. The more I got in alignment with who I really am, gosh, my energy started going through the roof and I started noticing, huh, there's something to that, you know, and, and that same principle we can hear in traditions such as alchemy. Uh, you know, the alchemist said, hey, you can take the, the lead of who you are. And as you become more rarefied, more purified, as you get on your path and your journey, something happens in the body. One of the transpersonal psychologists, one of the founders of the field that I've, I've worked with, has said that, that many times they'd find people who couldn't dump mercury. People with mercury toxicity who are going through a medical program to detox, they'd get stuck. And then they'd do a bunch of psychology sessions, and then all of a sudden they could release a lot more of the mercury, that, that there is a link between the, the mind and body. And it is a two-way street. And in my approach, I found that doing the personal power work is so incredibly difficult when you have brain fog, when, you know, when your metabolism is broken, that you're unlikely to achieve what your brain and your emotions and your spirit are capable of. So I focused on shoring up and upgrading the metabolic side to get the personal side, but you've flipped it around and said, do the personal side first, and then um, you'll get the metabolic side at the same time. I'm saying both and all at the same time, maybe that first, maybe this first. Got it. I'm saying it's a piece of that, you know, multidimensional puzzle. And I want to say to my mind, like in my languaging, when you said to yourself, hey, you know, I'm going to do this metabolic piece first because I've got to do personal growth. and My brain is all fogged up. To me, that is personal growth. So you and I all of a sudden. So for me, when I'm five years old and I said, wait a second, I want to try something. I want to change my nutrition. That was a personal growth moment. Saying to the universe, saying to yourself, I am going to shore up my metabolism, shore up my diet, as opposed to just kind of 
eat whatever's been thrown at me, that's consciousness. That's saying, hey, there's an exchange going on here between me and the environment. To me, that's just one step in consciousness. And it just keeps on getting more interesting from there, potentially. It's true. Even if you eat well and you you get your metabolism working, if you spend all of your time online, you know, taking down people and trolling, you're not going to be a happy guy. It's it's like that. You you need to, you know, live with integrity and uh, eat with integrity. And that seems to lead to that personal power that we're both talking about. Yeah. Well, let's let's shift gears a bit and talk about food addiction. What's the deal with food addiction? I, I mean, there's physical side and there's an emotional side. Do you address both? How, what's your what's your thinking on that? Yes, I think it's all kind of one and the same, the physical, the emotional. Yeah, we can tease it out and break it down. I want to share with you what I think is a is a simple, powerful couple of points here that will help anybody navigate through the interesting terrain now called food addiction because it's become a pretty popular topic. What I want to postulate or suggest here is that, yes, humans can get addicted to specific foods and substances. So if we look in the food realm, one can very much have a powerful addiction to sugar. That is a specific substance. One can have a powerful addiction to alcohol. We've known that for a while. Um, Food technologists, I've worked with food technologists for decades now. They are some of the most interesting and smartest people I have ever met. So in food technology, they have figured out all kinds of ways and have been doing this for decades, by the way, to create a sense of how do you mix salt, crunch, fat, taste. Now, crunch also inside the ears, perceived decibel levels of crunch will release a certain amount of pleasure. So they find the bliss point, they find the hook point so that indeed you can get addicted in the moment when you're eating a potato chip or a certain kind of corn chips or certain other foods. So yes, we can get addicted to certain substances. However, what happens is, now here's the psychology part, people hear the word addiction and addiction is a loaded term. Addiction comes with this big bunch of suitcases, depending on how you've been raised, what you've heard. Addiction often means I'm a weakling, I'm powerless, there's something wrong with me. You cannot be addicted to food in the larger picture. Why? That's like saying I'm addicted to oxygen. It's like saying I'm addicted to blood flow. It's like saying I'm addicted to blinking my eyes. It's a natural function of the body. You and I need food. I can be addicted to cocaine. Do I need cocaine? No. Can I eliminate it? Sure. You cannot eliminate food from the diet. So you cannot be a food addict. People will use that, that moniker, that label to support what they believe is, oh, there's something special that's wrong with me because I have challenges around food. And they want to pathologize it rather than look at their relationship with food, which indeed is challenging and painful and has suffering. They want to look at that relationship with food as the enemy rather than, wow, here's a challenge. We're going to walk through the door. We're going to see how it's a great teacher. We're going to see how your relationship with food isn't really about food. It could be pointing to your marriage. It could be pointing to your work. It could be pointing to your issues with your parents. It could be pointing to past history of sexual abuse or physical abuse, a million different things, different for everybody. That's my quick take on food addiction. Why does it work that way? Why would sexual abuse change your relationship to food? Like what's, what's the rationale behind that? Big time, big time, big time, big time. So there's a number of different reasons. And by the way, the research is very clear. It's not disputed in terms yeah. <laughs> of many people who have a past history of sexual abuse will have weight gain, will have an ability to lose weight, will have digestive issues, We'll have eating issues, disordered eating, eating disorders, whatever you want to call it. So check it out. So here you are. You might be a young person and something happens and you are sexually violated to the mind. The mind has a hard time, especially the young mind, grasping that, digesting it, managing it and making sense out of it. So oftentimes when the mind can solve an issue. We revert to instinct. We revert to survival instinct. So you and I are brilliantly locked and loaded with the physiologic stress response, the fight or flight response, which is designed to help you fight or flee from an attacker. Now, here's what's fascinating. 
There's a version of the stress response called the survival response. In survival situations, such as famine, no food available, and such as situations where all of a sudden you're thrust into an environment where you are threatened, the body does some interesting things. To the human mind and to the animal mind, the bigger you are, the more, the less of a target you are, and the more, technically speaking, you are the toughest monkey on the block. So the survival brain, not the conscious one, the survival brain certainly knows the bigger I am, the stronger I can be. And for the feminine mind, the bigger you are, I'm going to use the F word again, the fatter you are, the less of a sexual target you are. So unconsciously, the body's going to hang on to weight. Yes, it might be I start to eat a lot because eating also has a way to regulate our emotions. So if I have a trauma, if I have a stressor, I want to relax myself. I can go to alcohol. I can go to TV. I can go to gambling. The best emotional regulator you can turn to, arguably, is food. It's free. Just about it's easy. You can get it anywhere if you have a little money in your pocket. So it regulates our emotions. So I had this terrible thing happen to me. Don't know how to process it. Post-traumatic stress, eat, relaxes me and makes my body bigger. Therefore, I am now protected. At the same time, let me just say one more thing. Somebody can have an eating disorder. They could become a binge eater for decades. What that binge eating or that overeating is, it's a placeholder. You know, when you, when you study characters like Carl Jung, he'll talk about the psyche and how it's a playground, how it's symbolic. So the mind works symbolically. If I can't work my life out over here, I'm going to work it out here with food. If I can't control my life and the people around me and all the nutty stuff here, I can certainly control my eating or I can use my eating to play out, to act out what's going on inside me, out of control, despair, upset. So is that, does any of that make sense for you? That does make sense. And it, it's strange because it's not intuitively obvious to someone who hasn't seen the studies or looked at psychology mm-hmm. that there's such a strong connection between what your body does when a trauma happens. And it doesn't have to be a sexual trauma. It can be emotional abuse, shaming, whatever. There's all kinds of stuff that leads to that. What's there's a difference though between men and women. So the incidents say of anorexia in women versus men, it's way more of you know quote a girl problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Not to say it's less of a problem or not, but why is it more common in women than men? I think that's a beautiful question, and I have a lot of answers for that. But I'm going to keep it brief. I think in part. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can go back to our primal creation myth. It's kind of interesting because a lot of psychologists and historians and great thinkers will tell you you can understand a culture better when you look at their creation myth, the creation myth of Western civilization. Whether you believe it or not, one of the first stories you ever heard was about Adam and Eve. It's, and it's the first food rule. Don't eat the apple. Who breaks the food rule first? The woman tempts the man. Interesting. Interesting how from the beginning, our primal creation myth is about a forbidden food. It's about eating it. There is a special connection, whether we like to admit it or not, between women and food. The female of the species is the biological nourisher. She carries the gestating child. She is feeding it through a tube going into the child's belly. That kid pops out. She is feeding it with breast milk. Mother and infant are genetically bonded for eons of time. We have that wired into the system that women and food have a unique connection, plain and simple. Fast forward to modern times. We are in a lot of information overload. We're in an information war. There's a lot of fascinating concepts that are hurling at us from the time we pop out of the womb. And there's a lot of concepts and a lot of memes, a lot of toxic beliefs that are hurled at women. When the feminine mind, the feminine mind in women, the feminine mind in men is particularly vulnerable to criticism about beauty and about the body, just is. What is it about, like, what is it about anorexia in men particularly that 
that's different than in women? Like, are some of these bodybuilders potentially like male anorexics? Is that happening? Or what's your take on that? Because I always thought, you know, the I, I'm number one, I'm, I'm in awe of the guys who can, you know, weigh 350 pounds of solid muscle, super lean and ripped. And I'm like, that's, that's cool. And it's an achievement. At the same time, like, a lot of those guys die in their 50s. And like, can you talk about the psychology of bodybuilding versus anorexia? Is there a, some overlap there or am I just out on a limb here? Um, uh, yes, you're out on a limb, but I love the limb and I think it's a great limb. And in a lot of ways, I'm, not, I'm making generalizations here. By mm -hmm. the way, anorexia amongst males is increasing. It is still massively more prevalent in females. For many years, I have viewed anorexia more as the feminine eating disorder and for many men, not all, who get heavily into the bodybuilding universe, uh, sort of the weightlifting, bodybuilding, almost hyper, you know, testosterone induced, taking the steroids kind of bodybuilding is a reverse eating disorder for men. Women are taught the more I shrink my body, the more attractive I am. So we get the message through culture that skinny and pretty equals desirable equals you will be loved. So if I am not secure in myself weighing 150 or 140 or 130 or 120 if I'm a woman, the world seems to be telling me that if I could just get even skinnier and then even skinnier that somehow I will be loved and I will be adored because look at all these skinny models who get all the attention. Now, what are men told for goodness sakes? I grew up with comic books. I grew up with Spider-Man and Iron Man and all these dudes and men, they're big. So, wow, yeah. if I can only be big, then I'm the man. And, uh, you know, I didn't notice this because when I first, and, and, and I'm a little guy, I'm, I'm five foot eight. And, you know, I was a football player when I was in high school. I was one of those, like, small, fast running backs. And when I first started going to Gold's Gym when I lived in California and I saw these huge guys, I was shocked when I started noticing that they were extremely insecure, that I was often the most secure guy in the gym. <laughs> I thought they would be way more kind of grounded and, and just way more self-assured than I would be. And it was a stunning realization so oftentimes, to me, what this teaches us, it doesn't matter what the body looks like. I bet you know you've met a lot of people, let's say women, who had all the Hollywood good looks who still didn't feel good about how they looked and were still upset about their body, likewise with men. So the looks mean nothing, but we attach ourselves to this goal of, well, if I become this, either skinny for a woman, bulky for a guy, then I'm going to have it all. It, there's some merit to that. And I've noticed differences, say, between a, a strength coach or a, someone who's going after strength versus someone who's going after bulk mm -hmm. and looks. And it, it's different. There are just different personality types attracted to those things. And I, I'm not sitting here to, to, to judge any one of them as being superior or better or worse than others. Uh, I look at it from a longevity, like an anti-aging perspective. I'm like, what's the practice that's going to work for me? And the one that I can recommend to people as being, you know, science-based and leading towards uh, feeling good the vast majority of the time, having lots of energy, having your brain turned on and all that stuff. And I find that I gravitate towards the strength side, you know, having explosive power when you need it versus the bulk side. Uh, that said, I wouldn't like it if I walked around with, you know, super scrawny arms and I, I outright reject the anti-aging, you know, starve yourself to live forever uh, approach, which is pretty mm -hmm. far out there. Uh, any psychology interpretations on the, uh, on the, you know, extreme caloric restriction in terms of living very long periods of time? Yes. You know, it's um, this ethic, this understanding, this belief comes from numerous animal studies, mm -hmm. rats, mice that have, you know, probably started it back as then, back early as the 1930s. And it's an oft repeated experiment. You'll, you'll, you'll see different results over the years. Um, here's what I want to say about that. I think in part, there's a little bit of inaccuracy in the research. And I'm going to tell you what I mean. In the animal models, uh, here they are, they will calorically restrict lab rats, lab mice, in certain studies, they're gonna, they're, they've, they've used primates. You look at the normal rat laboratory diet, 
the mice laboratory diet, the primate laboratory diet. I've worked in scientific labs. You know, Purina makes the food. It's essentially junk food for animals. It's not their natural food. So when you cut down their food, you're essentially cutting down junk food. So if you're on a pure junk food diet right now, and let's say it was 3,500 calories of junk food a day, I guarantee you, if I cut it down to half that amount of calories, same junk food, you would be healthier, you would have less weight, and you'd probably live longer. So in animal studies, kind of what's happened is they don't take into effect the freaking quality of the food. It drives me <laughs> crazy. It drives me absolutely crazy because they feed animals animal junk food. It's the equivalent yeah. of animal junk food. So next, um, in terms of human studies, have we seen this borne out? Not quite. Um, what's fascinating and, you know, viewers, listeners, Google obesity paradox right now. Scientists have known about this for a couple of decades. It's a black eye in the, in the face of obesity and weight because the obesity paradox is essentially saying that within a certain range of being overweight, those overweight people are slightly longer lived than their lesser weight counterparts. It's a mind bender. It's an absolute mind bender. Scientists hate this because we have an immune response to this thing called extra weight. We are so fat phobic that it colors our intellect. It colors our scientific thinking. Um, you know, you, you Google health at every size. You'll see fascinating research that states the other piece of, well, the research about if you're overweight, if you're in either end of the spectrum, either end of the bell curve, extremely yeah. obese or extremely skinny, expect to have a shorter lifespan, expect to have more health challenges. Once you get slapped in the middle, it's a weird zone. So what happens is people are using weight and weight alone as the health measure. And yeah, well, what about percent body fat and percent muscle tissue? What about just let's look at your metabolic parameters. Let's take a blood test. Let's see what's going on. Let's look at your emotional health. You know, as far back as about 30 years ago, studies done looking at Zulu and Bantu women in Africa. These are some big women. And they have a lower rate of diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, and a longer lifespan than their American counterparts hmm. who weigh the same. Then you take those women, those Zulu and Bantu women, they come to this country, they come to the United States of America, excuse me, and then you'll start to notice diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, you know, start to shoot up. Interesting. So there's other factors that we don't always look at. Because the scientific mind is very biased towards certain measurements. Quite frankly, there's certain things we can't measure. You can't measure love, you know, but for goodness sakes, we might agree that it exists. You can't measure, measure personal passion or commitment, but we know it exists. To me, these things impact our health, impact our weight even. I've seen it. Um, you can only observe it sometimes. Yeah, that that's why I talk about the, the bulletproof state of high performance. And there's a state, and it's maybe the same as a flow state. I had a really influential mm -hmm. discussion with uh, Stephen Collar about that. And whatever you want to call it, there's some state you're in where you're like, wow, I feel really good and I feel passion. And I think you're going to live longer if you spend more time in that. But getting there requires kind of a careful dance. And it is harder to get there if you're 300 pounds like I used to be. And I've never been 3% body fat, but understanding what I understand, I, I don't think I want to be at that level either. So like you're saying, somewhere in the middle, 15, even 20%, as long as it's in the right places and you know your blood panels look good, it seems like that middle path is the one that's going to lead to you know, the most energy and the most longevity. And uh, the problem is we don't have all the science. But there's a question I want to ask you because I'm fascinated by this. Chewing and crunching as related to inborn aggression. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you've actually written about this recently. What's the deal with chewing and crunching and aggression? So there's a term that scientists will use and evolutionary biologists will use, the kind of characters who study this weird arcane stuff, which I actually find a little fascinating. The term is used dental aggression. And you could see this most basically if you go to a zoo and you look at a poor lion in a cage, and the zookeeper throws the lion a nice big piece of meat. 
that lion just doesn't sit there and eat. Oh, actually, after a bunch of years, it will. But for the first handful of years, it will attack that piece of meat. Lion's not stupid. It knows the meat is dead. It will, it will ravenously tear it up because there's an energy, there's an evolutionary energy that for animals and for humans comes through the jaw. The jaw is what most creatures will eat you with. When a dog, your dog wants to let you know, sorry, Dave, I don't like what you're doing. It's going to jaw you. It's going to show you I got teeth. I got a jaw. You make that jaw big and tough to show aggression, to show I can hurt you. So what happens is there's a certain resolution of aggressive energy when that lion tears at the piece of meat because we have an aggressive nature in us um, from the instinctive animal level. So the lion has an instinctive animal aggression. It ain't angry. When a lion rips apart, you know, a springbok, that's the African equivalent of a deer, it doesn't rip apart the deer because it hates it. Quite the opposite, it loves it. But it has this aggressive energy. Now, you and I as humans, we build up a little aggression. You know, I had a rough day at work. Some guy cut me off. Some guy grabbed my parking space. They shortchanged me at the supermarket. And we have aggression. We work out our aggression in different ways. Some people like to work out their aggression through exercise. I love that way. Um, a lot of people work out their aggression unknowingly through, through chewing. We chew gum. Watch the, the, the football coach constantly chewing. You always see them on the sidelines just about ready to tear something apart. Okay. Totally. They don't have their act together. They're not, they're not a cool, calm customer. They are so nervous. They are so angry. They are so aggressive that the gum chewing helps regulate their experience so they can continue on and make good decisions. So a lot of times if we are not aware, what we will do is we will use crunch as a way to release aggression. I'm not saying that's bad. It becomes challenging when we start to get attached to it. So years ago, Lay's Potato Chip was the first company really to capitalize on this. Way back in the 19, about the 1970s, they created this apparatus where you could measure the perceived decibel level in your ear when you ate a chip, and they were able to find the pleasure point of perceived sound in your ears, depending on the level of crunch. They standardized their potato chips to a certain crunch level, and then they aimed a commercial at you and said, nobody could eat just one, because you're going to love how this sounds feels in your mouth. So we want to release that aggression. The jaw does that, and there's a pleasure in it. There's a pleasure when we, when we release energy, um, any kind of energy that's bottled up in the system. That's the kind of short answer here. So for biohackers interested in cognitive performance or meditation or somewhere in there, more crunch or less crunch? Like how, how do I use crunch to hack my awareness? Like should I, should I be crunching my bulletproof coffee somehow? Chocolate covered <laughs> coffee beans? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to say no. I'm going to say watch your relationship to crunch. Okay. Some people are just all about the chips. They're all about the crunchy foods. And... If somebody is attached and they're getting kind of really into the junk food, carbohydrate snacks, I'm going to say part of it is the crunch. So a way wow. to hack into that is how can I get crunch in another way? You know, my favorite thing because I was brought up on junk food, so there's almost this memory inside me. I just want to eat chips, which, which don't work for me. So if I do carrots and that sounds so you know, so like nutritionally predictable, but the carrots give me that sense of crunch. And I don't really love carrots that much, but I love that sense of, man, I am crunching this. I'm getting what I want. And I happen to be getting a real good food in my body that has a lot of fiber that's going to clean me out. So it's about watching your relationship to it. Not that you're crunch deficient. I find a lot of people are crunch excessive and it comes in the form of being hooked on crunchy junk foods that's when you want to hack in and say how else can i manage that even gum chewing would be better because it's giving your jaw that that experience of what it needs it, it's interesting that the only nerve that goes into the brain uh, itself is the fifth cranial nerve which comes right off the back molars 
Mm-hmm. And I should say the only nerve that 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 the brain has that that gives it awareness of itself. So all the other nerves that go into the brain are looking outside, but the only data that's basically about what's happening in the brain is that one weird nerve that goes to the molars. And I've actually done work on my own molars to change the height, to change the angle of my jaw, because the way my jaw was, was putting my body in a sympathetic nervous system uh, so, sorry, sympathetic overdrive in my nervous system all the time. So mm-hmm. the way I was chewing was actually causing biological stress and I couldn't turn it off if I was going to eat anything besides like a Slurpee. Mm-hmm. So I was shocked at the change in my mental cognition and my overall well-being, even my posture, just by moving my lower jaw forward. And I believe there may be some connection between the crunch and the fifth cranial nerve, but uh, maybe someday science is going to tell us more about that. Well, there are so many people, and now there are more and more dentists diagnosing, you know, TMJ, where we lock the jaw, the jaw gets locked, the jaw gets tight. There's a lot of reasons why that can happen. Some are dental reasons. A lot of it is lousy dental practices year after year after year. A lot of it is emotion that gets locked in the jaw. Think of people that that you've known or you see or who like kind of have like a jaw that looks like it's about to bite you. That's anger that's not getting expressed. So then when you eat, it's actually, as you say, it's reproducing once again that sympathetic dominance. So one of the brilliant maneuvers that we can do, one of the hacks you can do that's real simple and real easy is to eat slowly. The act of eating, so let's, let's do it in reverse. The act of eating fast by itself is considered a stressor by the brain. You could be the most happiest, relaxed guy in the world. You just got a big fat paycheck. Everything is great. And if I say, here, Dave, here's this nice meal, your favorite meal. Eat it in less than five minutes. You will do it, and in that five minutes, your body will go into some degree of stress-induced digestive shutdown. You will have less blood flow to your gut. You will have less enzymatic output in your gut. And what that means, you will also have decreased nutrient assimilation, which means increased nutrient excretion, simply because your body is shifted towards sympathetic nervous system dominance because the stressor of eating too fast has hit your nervous system. Why is eating too fast a stressor? Well, kind of how we're designed. The dietitians figured this out a while ago through a bunch of research and it takes the body, it takes the brain approximately 20 minutes to realize it's full. Now, really what that means is that it takes the brain, head brain and gut brain, you have a separate yet interconnected nervous system in your gut called the enteric nervous system. It takes these two talking heads, so to speak, about 20 minutes to scan the meal, to understand the nutritional profile of what you've just ingested. How much, how much essential fats does this guy have in his system right now? Do I have enough amino acids? Do I have enough micronutrition, macronutrition? What the heck is going on? Do I need more liquid? Do I have enough bulk? Is there enough fiber in here? So that's a complex process. It takes time. Now, the brain is saying, whoa, stressor if you try to do that fast. Digestive system will literally shut down, and that's why people complain, oh, my God, I'm an overeater. I can't stop eating. Well, you don't have a willpower problem if you overeat. You just aren't driving your vehicle properly. The manual says, your DNA says, you need to eat slowly so your brain has time to scan. Because when your brain says, you know, done, you got what you need, appetite regulation kicks in and says complete. You don't need willpower. It's a natural mechanism that takes over. So all I'm trying to say is, we need to be in parasympathetic nervous system dominance because the way brain, okay, here's brain wiring. This is the easiest hack around nutrition and digestion. And if viewers get nothing else from this conversation, take away this. The way the brain is set up, yin and yang, two halves, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Sympathetic nervous system is in its extreme. It's fight or flight stress response. In the extreme stress response, when you are truly running for your life, digestive system totally shuts down. Why? Because when that lion is chasing you, you don't need to be digesting your fruit loops. All your metabolic energy wants to go into survival. Now, when you shift into parasympathetic nervous system dominance, that is the, that's the state of relaxation response, but it's a switch that flips. When parasympathetic nervous system is activated, 
full, healthy digestion, assimilation, and check it out, day in, day out calorie burning capacity is activated. Yes, you and I burn calories more vigorously in the hour or maybe two that you exercise, but you burn the bulk of your calories in the other 22, 22 yeah. hours a day. Now, one of, uh, one of the Bulletproof team uh, met you at an event recently, and you talked about the slowdown method of eating. And she started doing it and said, in fact, the reason you ended up on the podcast is she said that just that one simple adjustment made her more aware and helped her track how she was eating, what she was eating, and kind of change her relationship to food. So that's, that's kind of cool. One conversation, probably not as long as this podcast, um, shifted her behavior to just sort of pay more attention. And I think, you know, people are, are in a hurry. People want to perform well. They want to get it done. Uh, but there is something to be said for sitting down and having a real meal. And I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're bringing that up as a psychological behavior and a nervous system behavior and something that you know, people looking to upgrade themselves, biohackers, can use as part of what they do to not just eat the right ratios of nutrients and whatever else, but to eat them from a place of parasympathetic dominance. Is there a value that you've seen to uh, set, putting yourself in a state of high heart rate variability, praying, uh, meditating or something else right before you eat? Thousand percent, yes. So let's look at it this way. If we if we want to just keep it in the realm of simple science, or if we want to refer to simple, beautiful science, again, we're understanding relaxation versus stress response, sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system dominance. A prayer before meals whether you believe in a higher power or not, will generally put you more into a relaxation response. Meditation essentially is designed to put us into relaxation response. Deep breathing, five to 10 long, slow, deep breaths. You could be the most stressed guy right now. In less than a minute, if you do some simple deep breathing, you can shift your body from sympathetic to parasympathetic dominance in less than a minute. It's kind of profound. So five to 10 long, slow, deep breaths. It doesn't even have to be super deep. It could be moderate. You know, if you're, if you're at a business lunch and you're with a bunch of people who, you know, deep breathing would be socially unacceptable. If you're just sitting there kind of looking at everybody and deep breathing, they think you're listening. You're just changing your brain state, which is changing your body state, which is changing your digestive and assimilative and calorie burning capacity. By the way, also, as you slow down and get into parasympathetic dominance, when you eat, you're in the natural state of appetite regulation. And what people begin to find is, oh, I'm here, I'm present, because when we are eating in sympathetic nervous system dominance, part of what's happening Let's go into another biohack here, which I, which I think is really important, slightly more advanced. So the main stress hormone is cortisol. Cortisol does a ton of cool things, and it's not bad stuff. Cortisol is circulating in our body right now. It's keeping us alert. It's keeping us on target. I, I supplement extra cortisol when necessary. So it's not a bad hormone. Just too much at the wrong time is bad. Bingo. So excess cortisol has an interesting feature. It will skew time perception. So right now, if you're the most relaxed guy in the world and I give you a hypodermic needle filled with cortisol within less than a minute, you're going to be going, man, when, uh, when is this podcast going to be over? What's going on? Why is this taking so long? I got stuff to do. Why does cortisol do that? Because when you're running from the lion, time is running out. Nature wants you to know, hey, dude, you don't have time to write the next great novel. You don't have time to daydream about your wife or your girlfriend. You need to get moving here. Time is running out. So whenever there's cortisol circulating in the brain, we become really fast. And when you become fast, you become more instinctive, but you don't notice the nuances. And when it comes to this is what you do to me, your work is all about nuances. You're saying, hey, taste this coffee, experience this product. This is different. Now, I can't, I can't believe you until I try the supplement, try the product and go, huh, I noticed something. If I'm moving too fast, if I'm watching TV, if I'm multitasking and I take one of your products or if I drink Bulletproof coffee, I'm not going to know the difference. It, most, that's very true. Most people are in that time skewed, excessive cortisol driving me into doing the next thing. And we're not in awareness. Awareness happens 
in meditation, but more to the point awareness happens when we're present and we're here and we're in more parasympathetic dominance. You, you know what, what's kind of funny? Um, when I, before I created the bean process, the upgraded bulletproof process for making the coffee beans, I did the 40 years of Zen training, which really developed uh, incredibly focused awareness powers. And I kind of caught myself noticing the difference in, in the different types of coffee. And, and eventually I went out and I created the bulletproof process. But then I'm really worried about the power of placebo because maybe I just tell people you feel better and then they do. So I haven't even published this yet, but I have a, a study where we had people try other coffee versus the coffee with my process. And instead of relying on the inner powers of awareness where we might, our conscious brain might you know, tell us what we wanted to, to hear, uh, we looked at objective psychological measures of executive and cognitive function. And what do you know? There is a difference, a very measurable and quantifiable difference between the coffee processing I'm doing and a typical store-bought coffee. Mm-hmm. And so the the problem that we all run into when we're biohacking and just people who are thinking smart, rational, scientific people is that how do I know that I can trust that inner voice? Do you have it, like a kind of some final words of advice for people about, okay, I think I sense something. How do I know that I sense it? And I didn't just tell myself that I sensed it. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful question. And I think if we look at, you know, again, let's go back to the yogis, let's go back to the Buddhists, let's go back to the Taoists. In part, they saw the mind as a tool. The mind is a tool. If you don't know how to use the tool, it's going to be like a jackhammer that's just going crazy and it runs itself and it says all kind of dumb stuff and it tortures us and it goes in any direction it wants and it gets distracted. So we train the mind. You train the mind by learning language, by learning math. You train the mind by meditating. There's a million ways to train the mind. So it becomes leashed. So we yoke it so we can be in more charge of it rather than it be in charge of us. So when you ask me the question, well, how do I know if what I'm sensing is true? You are training the body. And part of it is trial and error. Huh. So, you know, I, so, so I'm going to pull off from your story. So here you are in a foreign country and you drink, you know, uh, I don't know, the tea with the yak milk and you go, whoa, something's different here. Right. And so your company therefore started as a sensation in your body. <laughs> that Fair point. Exhausted. Yeah. You didn't go, oh, let me do a scientific study to find out if Tibetans actually have more energy and more clarity. No, you, it starts as an observation. And we as humans, for some weird ass reason, and we can talk all day why, we've lost trust in our intuitive function. And at the end of the day, it is a PhD skill to be able to, let's say, hear information and discern if I'm going to follow that information. It's a PhD skill to take in food and notice, huh, how does this make me feel? Wow, I don't feel so good. I don't know if I want to eat that again. Wow, I took this supplement. I feel better. It's a practice like Zen meditating. You notice and you notice and you notice, huh, how do I feel right now based on what I ate then? How's my energy? How's my thinking? And we begin to refine ourselves because refinement is the name of the game. Whether you want to make more money no matter what you want to get better at, it's refinement, it's practice, it's skill. So that would be my answer. Endeavor, be curious, and be a scientist of a faculty that is essentially, by definition, nonlinear, non-scientific, but that doesn't mean it's not as potent as any principle in physics or chemistry and biology. Just because you can measure it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That is, uh, uh, th- say those are wise words. And I'm looking for a few more of them because our final question on all the podcasts is, what are your top three recommendations for people who want to perform better in all walks of life? So it doesn't have to be from Institute uh, for the Psychology of Eating, just what you've learned walking your life's path, the top three recommendations people should know. Thank you. What a beautiful question. Um, and I wish I could... I can give 20 of them, but if I narrow it down to three, probably the first one would be 
authenticity slash truth is just being the truth of who we are. I think what I've noticed is, you know, I notice this in my own life and I notice this in friends, loved ones, clients, students, whoever, we're often conditioned to be a good boy, be a good girl, do this, do that. Here's who you're supposed to think, act. Here's what your sexuality is supposed to look like. Here's what you're supposed to eat. You know, here's your career path. And who am I actually really if I was expressing myself? Do I dare say the truth of who I am? Do I dare be who I'm being compelled to be what feels like it's just growing out of me, but I'm trying to suppress it because you might not like me if I say what I really want to say. Uh, I might lose my friends. I might lose my partner. I might lose everything. I might lose my job and I might be dangerous to people. So authenticity to me is great power and it's great power on all levels when we live the truth of who we are. Next I would say that we got to bring love into the equation and more the kind that's slightly less conditional. So, yeah, you know, I love people and I love my partner and I love my relatives and friends. And sometimes, you know, I want something back. And we tend to put a lot of conditions on love. I will love you if I will love myself as soon as I lose weight, make more money, whatever it is. Um, You know, the mind is brilliant. But there's so much research that for me should be headline news about how the heart is its own brain, it's its own thinking organ. There is literally brain tissue, its own brain tissue, its own nervous system tissue within the heart. Did you know that there is as much neural traffic going from heart to brain as there is brain to heart? We think this is central command. You know, it, it's, I think it's a four to one ratio, if I remember right, from the heart to the brain. Oh, That's really? That's Heart Math Institute you know data, that? yeah. <laughs> like that. That's a new statistic for me. I love it. You know, in this country, when, you know, in America, if we go, I think we go, I think, you know, you go to Japan, when they go, I think they point to their belly, for God's sakes, they point to their center, their tanden. It's all that it's sushi, all- right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's the thought of the heart, the heart thinks too. So for me, the next piece of that is love. And I guess the last one for me is to be inquisitive if you're not already about a higher guidance system, I think we're conditioned to believe that, you know, this brain operates because I make this brain better and I squeeze out more things from the brain or I could take things like good food and good supplements to make my brain better. And some say that the brain is also a receiving station. So it's pulling information. Uh, And where might it be pulling information from? Is there a guidance system? Are we being guided? Is there a North Star to orient ourselves to? So I'm 55 and the older I get, the more I feel that there's a, you know, (laughs) physicists will call it a chaotic attractor. We're being pulled by something out there. Um, So I think there's something happening. There's a greater intelligence in the universe that has its own hidden architecture, that has its own kind of rules. And I think it's interesting to explore that greater intelligence because if we're intelligent, then there might be greater intelligence because intelligence exists. So I think it's a profound and interesting exploration. I hope I answered your question. Oh, you absolutely did. And thank you. Where can people learn more if they want to become a practitioner for the Institute for the Psychology of Eating? Um, what's, the, what's the URL? How can they learn about you? Thanks for asking, my friend. We are psychologyofeating.com, all one word, psychology of eating. If you could spell psychology right the first time, give yourself a gold star. <laughs> you know, you come to our website. We have a great audio gift. You just sign up and you get into our email system. And it's, a you know, probably a good hour and a half of me talking more eating psychology principles. And also I talk a lot about another field I developed called mind-body nutrition, literally how the mind influences the body. We've talked a little bit about it here. You know, we have an eating psychology coach certification training for professionals. It's a distance learning program, pretty beefy, 250 hours. It's an eight-month training you could do from anywhere in the world. We have 
online programs for the public, Transforming Relationship with Food, brilliant program, very, very life-changing for a lot of people. Tons of free resources. For those who just want the freebies, get the information, go on the blogs. We got lots of videos. It's, um, you know, the information flows these days. So we have a lot on the website. For those who just want to tap in more, that's the way to go, psychologyofeating.com. Thanks, Mark David, for being a guest on Bulletproof Executive Radio today. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us the favor of going on to iTunes and telling the world that you like it. And while you're at it, if you go over to Upgraded Self and you click order on a bag of coffee or something like that, that is what funds this show and funds a lot of the other work that I do to get good information out there. Thank you for your time, and we'll see you on the next show. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.